0: wherever you are however you're listening it's America's talk radio show about opera it's opera box score I'm George Cedarquist joined by no one this week because the rest of the team is off celebrating Independence Day here in the USA of course we tape our shows on Monday nights this is likely hitting your earballs after the fourth and I hope you did have a safe fourth if you were celebrating. All right, this week it's a rerun of our show from last Independence Day when we launched a new segment, Singer Trading Cards. We're going to take a look at the American League and some great artists of the recent past that you're going to want to add to your collection. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, get the full show, Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes operaboxscore at gmail.com you're gonna get that obs beer coaster and the obs lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take this past weekend in chicago was a first of its kind event it was a nascar race on the streets of chicago it doesn't sound quite as impressive as you might think it was a fairly Height area of town just around Grant Park along Lake Shore Drive. If you've been to Chicago, you might know what I'm talking about. Was that not the biggest waste of time and money the city of Chicago has ever put onto sports? So I understand NASCAR cannot control the weather. And there was these huge rainstorms that pulled through Chicago. So party event was canceled, party event had to be cut short. I was able to step out of a rehearsal for a show that I'm directing and happened to be downtown, was able to listen to the cacophony of these engines. They are loud. They are long. I do not understand who is making all the money. I guarantee you it's not the city of Chicago. This was an event of epic proportions and... Nobody in this town is going to want to see it happen again soon, anytime. All right, let's talk some opera.
1: Chalk Talk on Opera
2: Box Score. That's right, we have a brand new segment here on Opera Box Score. So new, in fact, we haven't gotten Norm to record it yet. But, Oliver, walk <laughs> us through what this is all about. You mean
3: because Norm is always with us all the time when we record. Yeah, I mean, he's no, Nor- always, in Norm the room. On, always Norm is on summer hours, he right? He's a now. consummate <laughs> professional. He delivers it exactly the same way every time. It's really yeah, extraordinary. So, our new segment Singer Trading Cards is our way of giving uh, you know, singers their props. We want to we want you to know them. We want you to know what their stats are. We want you to know their their bios and what their great assets are. Uh, and we're going to give them some some scores for certain uh, aspects of their artistry. Plus, you flip it over and you have a really beautiful picture of them in the most outrageous costume with all the makeup <laughs> and headgear. If you're lucky, and- it's holographic. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And You've
2: activated we- my trap card. It's... <laughs> we're going to start with,
3: <laughs> with the American League because, you know, sometimes there are those players that didn't get the recognition they deserved because there were bigger stars uh, in the field at the exact same time. Case in point, uh, my first card today goes to uh, Eleanor Ross, nay, Eleanor Marilyn mm. Rosenthal from Tampa, Florida, a dramatic soprano who began singing in the 50s and was best known in regional houses and overseas until one day in 1970, June 6th, she was asked to step in. At the Metropolitan Opera on short notice for Birgit Nilsson in none other than the throat busting role of Turandot <laughs> alongside Franco Corelli and Pilar Lorengar. Her Met debut, no pressure. <laughs> what a, what yeah. a debut, jeez! <laughs> Let's listen to a tiny bit of Inquesta Regia from a 1970 70 performance. I'm not sure if it's the exact same one, but it was in that same run. So as you can hear, the voice is very dramatic. It has a lot of color, and uh, yes, it almost sounds like a scream when she says "quel grito." But I, I just think <laughs> I that think that that's is text painting. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that's <laughs> what we'll say. So, so Eleanor Ross is a dramatic soprano. She sang roles like Norma, Amelia in a Masked Ball, Santuzza, uh, Abigail, Kerubinis, uh, Medea, uh, Madalena in Andre Chenier. Um, all of the most dramatic and powerful music. Uh, she was, however, a quintessential Norma. And I think we should hear a little bit of her Norma. This is from a famous tape that was made in 1967. There's an entire video attached to it uh, with Mar- Mario del Monaco as Polione, mm. But we're going to listen to the final aria. Uh, de non volermi vittime," Is that how you say it, Matt? De non yeah, vo- that sounds right. Okay. Ah, uh, this is the aria where Norma is asking her dad, "Will you just like watch these kids while I step into this fire?" <laughs> <laughs> Direct translation. I'll be, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> um, this is just to show her bel canto chops, her ability to phrase and her her tone quality, which you know at the end of a two and a half hour opera still sounds glorious with lots mm. of breath control and the ability to add thrust in the climactic uh, moments of the phrase. a little heartbreaker there for you norma from uh berlin uh in 1967 so she sang a lot at the met donna anna aida once again amelia Elisabetta, and don carlo lady macbeth leonora and trovatore and tosca as well as joconda unfortunately uh, sad story in 1979 she had bell's palsy right in the mm. middle of a run of aida and she sang uh, she sang in an Aida and she had like a feeling in her face like something is wrong. And that was the last time she sang uh, in an opera. But uh, so her career ended abruptly after only, I think, nine years at the Met mm. and the her earlier career in regional houses and European houses. Uh, she did go under uh, a she surgery. She didn't even do Forza, the cursed opera. Yeah. <laughs> she did have a surgery and um, in 1996, she was able to sing Uh, in a concert. uh, And we're here a little bit of that concert. Uh, This is uh, Eleanor Ross singing Summertime. Just imagine Eleanor Ross in her Turandot garb, her very uh, non racist turndo garb. <laughs> uh, with it's all an the, older yeah. baseball cards, yes, is what we're saying. Exactly. But you flip it over and we look at some of the stats. Uh, for power, she gets a 92 Ooh. for chest, I, I, voice, I, Out of
2: how many? What are we talking about? Out of about here? 100 on a scale. Oh, of 100, okay. yeah. 100 scale. Yeah. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah. I'm sure that will hold
3: true <laughs> among yeah. all of these. <laughs> Uh chest voice, I'm giving her a 95 oh, tone, tone quality is going to be an 85 because there are moments where uh, the, the vibrato kind of gets very fast and where she uh, puts so much thrust into the sound that the edges fray a little bit. But when she's singing middle voice and it's mezzo forte forte, uh, that is a gorgeous, dark American lined up bel canto tone. Flexibility is probably her lowest score, just an eighty-two, which is I think a good score for a dramatic soprano. Uh you can't compare her color to her passages in Norma to Edita Gubarova but nor does Edita Gubarova have the same, you know, power in the voice. Amplitude. Uh, yeah. I think I think you're always gonna, you know, say that Caballé and Kalas were the most florid of the normas. Drama, she's got it. Watch this video of her. Sutherland erasure, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Watch (laughs) this video of her singing. Normal, anytime, anything you could see where you see some uh, of her acting, she brings it. It's very histrionic, but it's totally committed. And I'm going to give her just an 89 for. for Actually, these points are not. I haven't given these points. These are the points that are just come down from science. So, uh, really. Really uh, beautiful phrasing, especially in Bel Canto, especially when, once again, uh, there isn't a big, big climax in the phrase. Uh, She does go for the climax is why she scores high in power. Uh, But she tends to spend a lot of breath on some of those climactic notes. But I think, once again, if we're talking about, you know, uh, mezzo forte, forte max, uh, she can spin a line like anybody else. So all in all, a great Americans saying we don't have a lot of Americans who did this repertoire when there were greats like Nielsen and Kallas and Shirley Verrett, right, around. right, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> well, that's our contractual <laughs> obligation for mentioning to, to the Verrett once per episode yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, let me set the stage for you. I've uh, I've gone onto eBay and I've ordered a lot of a hundred. Uh, baseball cards, and I'm thumbing through them, I see a uh, first edition Sammy Sosa garbage thrown in the trash. I'm flipping <laughs> through, I see a, a Babe Ruth with the original bubble gum from uh, 70 years ago, garbage, trash, and then I, I, I pull out, what do I pull out, Matt? Who do I pull out next in this amazing box that I'm going to frame?
1: You're pulling out one of the top singers ever to come out of the American conservatory system, oh. and that is none other than... Eleanor Staber. Uh, she is... You got two pre- Eleanors.
3: That's what... How this random is, this is, is that <laughs> great <laughs> Eleanor
1: representation? Eleanor Sopranos. <laughs>
4: uh,
1: Eleanor Staber was born in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia and trained in New England Conservatory. She it was one of the first... American born, American trained singers to really uh, rise to prominence. Uh, and part of that has to do with just like her dates, because she was born in 1914. So she's kind of in between the generation of singers like Tabaldi, Nilsson Callas, and the singers before them, like, uh, I don't know, Amelie Tagali Corchi, or names that you have only heard on like weird phonograph transfers. Um, <laughs> and so she was getting her start in the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, and as you can maybe imagine, with a cursory knowledge. Of world history, there may have been a reason why European singers had a difficult time coming over to the Metropolitan yeah, Opera at why. that point. <laughs> so, Staber was one of those crops that was he- of singers who was heavily, heavily recruited to be able to take on uh, these roles and continue the operations of the house. Uh, uh, and she made her debut in the role of Sophie and Der Rosen Cavalier, which is kind of insane given yeah. that the the size of repertoire that she would go on to sing. Um, But her, one of her calling cards uh, in a very American singer kind of way was her versatility. Um, So she sang all kinds of roles at the house. Like Desdemona Damon of Violetta Arabella in um, the titular Arabella uh, uh, (laughs) Constanza in abduction from the Seralio, the countess. uh, She premiered the role of uh, Samuel Barber's Vanessa. And, one, uh, she mostly did perform at the Metropolitan Opera in terms of full roles. Um, though that relationship did sour a little bit when Rudolf Bing took over as the general manager there. Um, he was known. I mean, he was Viennese. He he was known as like. Kind of a blue blood, very aristocratic, very snobby, wanted (laughs) wanted European singers. Thought that European singers were what the audiences wanted. Beverly Sills has talked about this at length. Mm. Um, But one of the first singers to really fall by the wayside as a result of that is uh, what was Eleanor Staber, who had been a stalwart of the house, but then started losing out to prime assignments to... Renato Tobaldi Maria Callas uh, Licia Albanese Lisa Della Casa uh and so we never got the chance to he- we you didn't really get the chance to hear her in her prime in roles uh like uh Minnie in del West which she mm. did do in a fantastic uh live performance in Florence with Franco Corelli let's hear a clip of uh her aria from act 1 of that La Giuna Soledad The gleam in her voice, that high C, like, comes out of nowhere like a ball of fire. Uh, And there are lots of recordings of this aria where it does not actually uh, make it all the way up to a C. And they are not by Renata Tibaldi. I would never say anything like that.
5: Um,
1: But she... uh, And and this is from someone who was mostly known uh, as a Mozart and Strauss specialist. On top of being a, like... On top of her variety, if there was one kind of niche that you would have slotted her into, it would have been that Mozart and Strauss kind of vein, um, because of the way that her, her voice was so even from top to bottom. It was totally secure. You never really hear register breaks. Um, it really blooms and gets ravishing in, in in her upper register. And so she's able to ride those high lying Mozart and Strauss roles and just like ride that breath support and shape the line to do whatever she wants it to do. Um, and uh, on top of that, her range of dynamics are, are simply incredible. The fortissimo's are colossal and the pianissimo's are so breathtaking and so delicate. Um, and it never feels like you're, like, po- digging into a bag of tricks. Like, it always feels totally organic. So let's get a sense of um, what that mid-century Mozart style would have been like. So this is going to, you know, it's going to sound a little slow. It's going to sound a little um, <laughs> big band to you, maybe. But with singing like this uh, in in Marriage of Figaro, Porgia more Amore, like, I wouldn't complain. The way that she floats those phrases, those those notes up on just like one single thread of the voice, like that is true Mozartian style, mm. um, and it really holds true even, e- even though like stylistically we would perform this music
3: incredibly different nowadays. I, I would also right. say that like there's something about the quality of these recordings that just feels nostalgic i don't know, just the way she sounds uh-huh. and there's like a little bit of a graininess like in like a hiss in the sound that just makes it feel a little bit i don't know just older and uh it feels like it's in black and white you know but um, you, but <laughs> if
1: you compare her to other recordings of this time i do feel like you get a, se- a better sense of just like the caliber of tone quality than you would from like sure. Alicia Albanese. and I,
3: I before i forget to say it i have to just say like in something like Porto jam uh, it feels melancholy, but it feels athletic at the same time. And I think that is something that's so unique to her, maybe makes her sound so American, is that even when she is doing the most delicate and the most, you know, nuanced singing, you always hear the technique, you always hear that she's can, you know, if you want to add volume to that, sure. If you want to add, you know, a high note to that, sure, no problem, it's there, you know. And there are there are some videos of her
1: out there because she performed a lot on like the Bell Telephone Hour and Voice of Firestone and those kinds of like evening variety shows. She was kind of a stalwart there, uh, and you watch her; she is planted like an Olympic weightlifter. Like it, ne- <laughs> it never looks it. It is always fully engaged, like whether it's high, whether it's low, whether it's loud or whether it's soft. Like you can see that too. You like, on top of just hearing it. And, you know, for a a pretty sizable voice, like, this is someone who premiered the role of Vanessa. Uh, She learned it in just a couple of weeks after Zena Yuronats backed out. uh, And Maria Callas said that she didn't want to do it. Like, she was an impeccable musician and, like, could make a lot of sound. But she's also, like, her recording of the Susanna aria from Marriage of Figaro is beautiful and so delicate. And she can use, like, the right amount of the voice to bring these characters to life. Um, and her coloratura is pretty good, too. It, it's articulated. It doesn't sound manufactured or like she's just lunging at it and hoping for the best. She premiered the role of Constant. She was the first person to sing um, Abduction from the from the Seraglio at the Met. And she holds up pretty well in those endless, endless runs that just go up and down the scale again and again as they put it in Amadeus. Unfortunately, her her life was not free from tragedy. She did suffer from uh, both asthma and alcoholism, and and performed less and less as she got older. But but continued a career as a teacher, uh, and that alcoholism I only bring up because it really in- it it leads us into one of possibly the most famous story about staber as a singer which was that in the mid 40s she was recording a recital disc it was supposed to be mozart and strauss heroines and you know they were they couldn't get it they just couldn't get it to click um and so the the engineer asked her what she wanted to sing and she said well why don't we try the aria from louise depuis le jour? uh and they said okay and went out and found <laughs> the parts and they recorded it in one take yeah and so take a listen to that take now. This is just the most resplendent, refulgent singing from top to bottom. It goes high, it goes low, it goes loud, it goes soft. Sometimes like on in one phrase, it just sounds so easy for her. She's able to do all these tricks back to back without ever sounding like she's breaking a sweat.
3: Athletic and melancholy at the same time.
2: Sometimes you only need one take. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. And so when I turn this card over, we're gonna see that her her strengths, the tone quality and caliber of sound is 95. For yeah, her
0: absolutely. variety,
1: it's a 90. you know, she's a little bit limited by the the what they were letting people sing in mid-century America. If she were around Legally. today, I think she would be on every recording of everything. Her flexibility and her dynamic range is a 92 coloratura is an 89 the legato and her phrasing the sound just pours out of her it's a 93 for me and and uh her commitment to the drama and to bringing the characters to life through her vocalism is a, is a respectable 84 well that's an amazing uh uh sort of set of
2: stats here we've got one more and ashley to set the stage here for you uh you've got uh, i've got all my uh my uh, my opera cards out on the table and I move uh, Birgit Nielsen into attack position and focus it on your uh, uh, on your <laughs> card. But Unfortunately, I've activated your trap card, and your trap card is...
4: We're moving to Mezzoland. We're going to talk about my friend Flicka. Eleanor. None, <laughs> none other. Yes, Eleanor. Uh, no, we are going to talk about Frederica von Stada, who I love Yay. and who everybody should love more. Uh, this is... This is the title of my segment. Carabino Belcanto americano tesoro. Those are the words <laughs> that I am thinking of when it comes to her. So we often will praise mezzos that are full and heavier. And officially, those are the ones I love. The woman singing Ulrika right now at CSO. I want to be her when I grow up someday or when I die. Um... While I love heavy mezzo sounds, Flicka is that light mezzo, and she's sweet, and she's clear, and she's agile. She is energetic, and she is playful, and, you know, the voice strengthens later on in her career, but it still has this uniqueness and playful sound that is just 100% her. She is also this gap bridger between some, like, major eras. You know, she first fell in love with opera after she saw Elizabeth Schwarzkopf sing live. She eventually ended up coaching Mahler with Bernstein, but then she ended up sharing the stage with people like Richard Stillwell, Jerry Hadley, Tommy Hampson, Kathy Battle, Susan Graham. So she really does have this span when you think about sort of timelines and how we move forward in 20th century opera. She right. has sung on over a thousand recordings that range from bel canto to jazz. I know we've been looking, at, we've been talking about people as if they're on baseball cards. I'm going to switch to the lesser known football cards. Oh. Uh, and in NFL terms, I like to think of her along the lights of contemporary players like J.J. Watt, Travis Kelsey, Russell Wilson. They have these incredibly long tenures. They are essential players who also just happen to be the nicest folks on the field. Because she is also known, in addition for her fun personality and her warmth and her beautiful instrument, she's also just known as an incredible human, and that's one of the reasons that I love her she came to us from upper crust stock in the wealthy northeast america Uh, i think she was born in like somerville new jersey uh she was born in 1945 sadly her dad died literal weeks before she was born in world war ii um her musical development however didn't exactly follow sort of this upper crust you would imagine that someone born into such a life of privilege would automatically be in all of the finest conservatories it's not exactly how it turned out for her. Uh, her career laid these really strong foundations in Mozart and Rossini in French and modern American repertoire. Uh, she actually first started singing opera when she got a compromario contract from, speaking of, the aforementioned Rudolph Bing <laughs> after uh, she competed in the 69 Met recruiting competition. She says one of her compromario jobs in the beginning was zipping up to Baldy before some of her B-flats. Which, <laughs> on a good night, were
1: actually B-flats. Did I say <laughs> that? Oops.
4: <laughs> what? shade the tea is hot today uh, she did spend a few seasons as a compromario at the Met and then she left in 72 to take her first major contract which is Carabino in Marriage of Figaro at Versailles with George Schulte conducting um, this is a weird fun side fact in addition to sort of the history that she makes in classical music and opera she also made history in American family case law uh, her first divorce set a precedent in that establishing the principle that when marriages of performing artists dissolve the courts can attribute an economic value to their celebrity status and treat it as a marital property to be shared with former spouses. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Her first, her first divorce is in textbooks. Uh, but let's get back into this Carabino Bocanto Americano tesoro of it all. Carabino. She was the Carabino to end all Carabinos. She sang <laughs> that role in three different decades. She sang wow. it 48 times at the Met. Let's go on to stats. 48 times at the Met, Houston, Santa Fe, Vienna, Chicago twice, Salzburg four times. She sang carabino everywhere. She was the consummate carabino from the 70s to sort of the early 90s. Uh, she did end up covering a lot of other Mozart territory as well. She got into the Dupontes with Dora Bella, Sarlina, and Despina, the last most recently as uh, 20, i said my notes say 21, but that's not wrong, 2012 at Ravinia, uh, <laughs> and she made a home for herself in the trouser rolls of Clemenza and Ido Mineo. Uh, Belcanto, her Rosinas, I love this about her, her Rosinas were very much on her own terms, both in music and dramatic interpretation a lot of people before her played rosina as a soubrette, and she added this depth Mm. and substance to both the music and the drama that her rosinas were sharper they were more strong-willed in one moment and then allowed to be tender in the next so it wasn't just like a a quirky you know second grader on the first day of school shaking her finger soubrette interpretation (laughs) of rosina these these women had much more personality and agency
1: and that that also like it that ties in so well with her like her strengths as a singer because she has this beautiful 100%. sweetness to her voice. But there's a lot of tanginess underneath it, too, that I love that she keeps it in there. It uh, it just feels very personal and it's uh, like instantly recognizable. That kind of um, it's almost like a twang when she at, at the bottom of her register where like you can hear that twinkle in her eye it, in Rosina.
4: All right. Let's talk about the stats for Rosina. We're looking at 22 times at the Met. Covent Garden, Vienna, Hamburg, San Francisco twice, La Scala twice, Chicago twice. She also had some incredible turns for Rosini and Cenerentola, Rosini's Otello, Sonambula, and La Donna del Lago. This is what she says about Bel Canto. I love this quote. And she says, I love Belcanto. It's the core of what singing is about. I really believe so much in Belcanto, and particularly Rossini's music. It does everything that can be accomplished through the voice. Sometimes what you want to get across is, this is hard, but I am fantastic because I can do this. (laughs) That's what Rossini is. and That's also a lot of what Flicka is. Uh, So we've hit the carabino and the Belcanto. Let's talk about the Americano. Flicka's career has been intertwined with her home country. When we talk about operas, we know her for things like Dangerous Liaisons, The Aspirin Papers, Coffer in Egypt, Three Decembers, but perhaps most of all, Dead Men Walking, which leads into her relationship artistically with Jake Heggie. Musical theater, this woman recorded Showboat, Anything Goes, and On the Town. She starred in A Little Night Music and Candide, and she even has a jazz album. Frederica Von Schada sings Brubeck. Uh, She has always said that she is glad that she chose an opera career over musical theater because it allowed her more space. She would only perform a few times a week as opposed to theater where she'd be doing like eight shows right, a week yeah. but wow this woman can sing sondheim there is a recording of her singing send in the clowns and it is tender and beautiful and poignant and it's just it, it i couldn't love her more uh now we get to the tesoro Though she might be eclipsed sometimes by the reputations of some of her other contemporaries, the Upshaws, the Bartolis, she is legit one of the nicest people in opera. That prima donna stereotype—it never really fit her. She has this voice that seems to be an extension of her personality. It's warm. It's energetic. It's human. It is uniquely hers. Uh, Brian Keller wrote about this once in Opera News. Uh, he says, one of the odd things about Von Schaade's success is that people don't seem to talk about her voice all that much. Uh, she may owe her army of admirers primarily to her stage appearances. Certainly she possesses a personal warmth that's rare in the theater. She does give a sense of having worked very hard Always to be a good colleague. She is endlessly supportive of her associates. Uh, Since the 2010s, she's sort of semi-retired. She's stepped back and she's been doing a lot of real big active work in charities in the Bay Area, which is where she settled with her second husband. Also, one of the proceedings from getting married to that guy also ended up setting family law precedent. That's a story for another day. Uh, (laughs) She's she's just breaking down
1: barriers everywhere she goes. (laughs) She
4: really is. But she's been incredibly active in raising money and being an activist for certain, uh, specifically children's charities in the Bay Area. And every account that I have read when it comes to interacting with Flicka uh, and my personal interactions with Flicka, she's just an unapologetically genuine human and i know i have gone on many a rant on this show about opera singers it's so nice when they're also good people as well and she is absolutely one of the definitive measures of that Uh, so in terms of sort of trading card stats i i love her a lot these numbers are fully unbiased these are just facts and science uh coloratura let's give her an 11 out of 10 uh sparkle (laughs) let's give her Nine out of ten. Interpretation ten out of ten. Again, I'm just the messenger. These this is just science and all around good human points. One billion out of ten. that seems reasonable. Yes, lovely human and different reading skill on the football cards. That's a a different (laughs) reading skill on those. Um, I did not pepper my uh, my info to you guys with some recordings, but I have them all here at the end. Again, like I mentioned, she is. She was known for a very long time as like the quintessential Carabino, Uh, and right here we're gonna play you a little bit of her doing that role in 1980 at the Upper Garnier, Garnier, excuse me, uh, with George Schulte conducting. another one of the areas where she was really, really beloved was in French repertoire. And why not hear a little bit of her as Octavian in Rosenkavalier next to Kathleen Battle and Renee Fleming at a 1992 concert with the Berlin Philharmonic. And finally, let's talk a little bit about those coloratura fireworks that are so beautiful in her instrument. Here's a little bit of Tantia Fetti from Dona del Lago with Martin Katz at the piano in 1981.
2: Uh, George is not here. So regrettably, I'm the one in charge of sports. So please, please, someone help me.
4: <laughs> I'll take this one. Uh- <laughs> If you remember from our Sportsondo talk a couple of episodes ago, uh, where baseball fever hit at such a pitch that people in other towns wanted to know about games that were happening across the country. Uh, There's a 2022 version of that that just happened a couple of days ago. Uh, So the Stanley Cup finals literally just finished. Congratulations to the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, But the fans in Tampa Bay wanted to see what was going on for the Avalanche game that was happening in Colorado so they're the lightning the Tampa Bay lightning used tracking technology to simulate the Stanley Cup final for fans in <sighs> their home arena that so sounds
2: familiar it, yes
4: it does yes it does <laughs> so it's really cool you can see it it's on uh, ESPN's Instagram from I believe the 25th uh, and there's literally like there's a shot from inside the Tampa Bay arena and there are little digital skaters just shooting across the ice that are being projected as a direct result of the game that's happening in Colorado it's a uh, It's pretty fascinating.
5: Good call,
2: bad call on Opera Box Score.
0: All right, good call, bad call. The way we're going to wrap up the show as we do every time. The good call is that that NASCAR race, it's finally over. We don't have to think about it anymore. Sadly, the uh, bad call is that we now have to approach the MLB All-Star Game and know that the day after... The Major League Baseball All Star Game is the slowest day in sports. There's literally no sports happening in America on this day. I hope we will survive. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow Apple Podcasts just to hit the plus sign. Hey, send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Opera Box Score at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. And my co-hosts are Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you can actually hear yourself think with no crazy engines going off. And we are back next week. With an all new show, more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more summer. Join
5: us.